You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because no one needs Tolkien with the serial numbers filed off. I'm Alexandra Rowland. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska. This is Episode 5, People in a Petri Dish. today well we are excellent and ready to talk good about and and our listener things. friends i hope you are excellent as well thank <laughs> you for joining us again um last episode we had a wonderful time talking to uh fonda lee amazing fantasy writer about uh some of the big picture questions surrounding culture and world building but we didn't really have enough time to do any hands-on world building uh, for ourselves in this sort of fantasy world that we're, we're creating together. So I think we're going to talk a little bit more about topics and then we're going to deep dive onto that and do some more magic right in front of your eyes for you, dear listeners. Yes, we had a great time talking about some of the big picture questions about culture um, and world building, but there are some big picture questions that we could dig into a little bit more and talk about and see how they might apply to our... Um, our world that we're building together. Who wants to start? <laughs> so one of the big picture questions that we did make the decision of is to populate our world entirely with humans, in t- at least in terms of intelligent civilization. We yeah. left the door open for other intelligent creatures that might exist, like intelligent sloths or dolphins or something like that. But in terms of who is building societies and cities and doing trade, we decided that's going to be just human. That's our, that's our big decision there. Yep. Yeah, we said no elves, no orcs, no dwarves, just humans. Yes. Humans. That was the big decision we made there. <laughs> human, like, human like, like Roman from the really bad robot monster movie, 1950s Roman yeah. versus <laughs> human. <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so never mind about that. So one of the big questions I think we need to dig into is how populated is this world that we're looking at? Um, We look at that global map that we have. um, Is it fully populated? Are there areas that are not populated? Um, Do we have regions that have no people, some people? How um, densely populated? How fully populated? What are we looking at? Well, I think that in a case like this, Um, When we're thinking about this, we have to take a moment to not be racist, as is, you know, our most most, uh, frequent piece of advice that we give on this show. Because, like, when we're thinking about the real world, um, the human diaspora happened a long time ago. So there have been humans in every part of the world for a long, long time. Um, And even now, like, when we think about the really quote-unquote remote parts of the world like the Amazon rainforest, like there's still people living there and minding their own business and raising families and living vibrantly in their own world. So I think that's something to to keep in mind. Um, And if we're proposing that there is an uninhabited continent, we have to think about why that would be. Why haven't humans who are such an incredibly inventive species why haven't they made it to this place yet or what is keeping them from settling there? yeah i mean in in the case of you know earth 
the only continent that didn't have essentially indigenous people who migrated to there and then settled there is Antarctica, which is right. completely unlivable and almost unreachable by any form of diaspora. Getting there and living there was far too hard for humans. But other than that, every other corner of the globe had at least some degree of people living there. So I think yes. in terms of space, I don't think there's a region on this map that we've done that I think is completely uninhabited. There might be some that are very sparsely inhabited, but mm -hmm. nothing that is completely uninhabited. Yeah, I think that's a big um, key element to look at is the actual globe itself. So we don't have a globe that we're looking at that, for example, the majority of land mass is in a couple of polar regions, because that would change the equation. Instead, we have a map where the majority um, of our land masses are circled, densely um, chunked together. So there's no really good reason that humans, if, unless we're going to totally write human diaspora theory, wouldn't start in one place and move to all of those other regions fairly easily. Right. We sort of designed this map to be really conducive to trade and um, cultures meeting each other and interacting with each other. And that means that, um, yeah, the whole globe is going to be populated. Looking at the map right now, maybe Area 15 has nobody there, but because it's, it's sort of this small island that's not it's not cold but it's temperate and it's way off away from mm. everybody else so that's a maybe but even then i'd say that people wandered over there and but yeah. like that's the only candidate i think even possibly for a a truly uninhabited area of the world everything else definitely has people living there at some level of population density and technology now what that level is depends on a lot of the choices we're going to make right now, but definitely on some level. Yeah. So do we, is it an important thing to answer that question of how dense is the population or like, are we happy with the idea that, you know, naturally there are going to be some places which are more densely populated and some which are more sparsely populated and sort of leave it vague on that level for now. I think we can leave it vague on that level for yeah. now. I, I can tell you in my, in one of my periods of really trying some bottom up world building madness, I, I developed a thing with my Excel spreadsheet that was like an algorithm that took the resources available in each region and what its biome is. And I like assigned these things numbers. And if there was and like an animal that was good for domestication that added to the number if there were plants that were good domesticatable plants for good crops that added to the number and had mm -hmm. it run a algorithm like a random thing for every hundred years of how much the population grew and when it reached a point of then like city states and civilization to see yeah. to try and randomly play it out to where where populations would get denser and all that I do not recommend doing this. It is not yeah. good for one's yeah, mental health. <laughs> but it was like, it was a even... fun experiment to do. But again, like most of the numbers I assigned to things, I just pulled out of the thin air. <laughs> yeah. Even for a podcast called World Building for Masochists, that's kind of intense, Marshall Ryan Maresca. Really intense. <laughs> it is intense. That's the that's the lying down on the coals level yeah. of masochism. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, though, because I think even if you aren't going to go to the extreme level of having a spreadsheet, it's a really good thing to be aware of, right? That different biomes and different survival strategies are going to support different kinds of population growth. 
So I think that that's a really smart thing. Um, you don't have to go into the extremes of having ratios and spreadsheets um, unless you want to, because this is for masochists. Um, but obviously, mm-hmm. um, you know, an agrarian society is going to be able to build up um, more stores for a population than, for example, a hunter-gatherer society that has to be um, a, a little bit smaller and more condensed or um or a, or a herding society. Right. Don't need a spreadsheet. What is this madness? <laughs> you don't need a spreadsheet. You might want a spreadsheet. <laughs> yes, yes. But yeah, basically, like, if you want to have cities, as far as I know, that kind of requires agriculture. Oh, it does. I, I did not get to this rant last week, but... There is a book, it won the Hugo, and it's a book that annoys me. <laughs> oh dear. It is called, it is, it is, it's actually a series by Robert J. Sawyer, it's the Neanderthal Parallax. Now the whole idea is it's this alternate world where Neanderthals mm-hmm. survived instead of humans, and so they have like an entirely different parallel history on this world, and then they open up a passageway between the human world and the Neanderthal world, and then there's exchange and problems and all that. This one a Hugo? This is a novel that won a Hugo? This won a Hugo. In the Neanderthal world, they never developed agriculture. It was pure, it remained pure hunter-gatherer, but they had cities with, like, electric cars and quantum computers, so they have this incredibly technologically advanced civilization, but at the same time, still hunter-gatherer. I was so mad at that, that somebody would be like, oh, that's a reasonable idea. Like, no, that... That's just not how anything works. You know, and having having not read the book myself, you know, it's like I, I, I don't want to make um, too many comments, but I, I, I do think that that's a good example of the craft of world building, um, that with choosing versus presuming, when you choose something really cool, but possibly can throw a reader right out of a world. So I think that's an interesting um, kind of kind of example there yeah that was definitely like other aspects of the book were actually really good but that aspect of it was like are you mm. kidding me that that <laughs> and yeah so it took me so out of it that that the fact that other elements of the book were like oh that's really good that's well done yeah. didn't matter um so back, to get us back on track uh marshall ryan Maraska, you <laughs> sorry look we can't spend the whole time just like bad mouthing our colleagues marshall ryan Maraska. come on <laughs> this is a good point this is a very good point <laughs> so to get us back on track you mentioned something about the technology levels um how about we talk about that for a minute yeah i think we definitely have to get into that big picture question of what technology level yeah. is this world at is the entire place all at the same technology level i mean that's a huge question a huge choose versus presume question to kind of dig into before we can build much yeah. else, right? And, well, and this is another place to, to be kind of careful because a lot of times um, fantasy writers and people in general who are looking at history have a tendency to assume that people in ancient times had more simple ways of doing things, more simple technology, quote unquote, even though... For example, the Romans had extremely finely engineered roads that still exist to this day and that are still marvels of engineering. Um, Just because they didn't have clocks or they didn't have uh, machinery of some sort doesn't necessarily mean that they were completely, quote unquote, primitive. Um, For example, one of, I think in the very first episode of the podcast, the fun fact that I gave at the end of the uh, episode was that natural gas as cooking fuel 
was used in ancient China back in like 3000 BC because they were drilling for salt. Uh, and that 3000 BC, like, I don't think I got the year right, but it was way far back. And that is something that strikes you as a very modern kind of technology to have. Um, and yet there they were. Yeah, and I think that if we even kind of bust out past technology, um, societal and religious and cultural yeah. um, complication and complexity um, has to be considered kind of that there was an early kind of thesis of anthropology that mm -hmm. the more um, technologically, quote unquote, primitive a society was, the more um, culturally, quote unquote, primitive the society would be as well. And that kind of bigoted baggage got kicked right to the door right away as people actually started learning about the cultures of people who were um, hunter-gatherers or who were nomadic herdsmen who weren't living yep. in major cities because their religions, their cultural heritage, their hierarchies within the society, um, all of these things were um, just as sometimes more complex than technologically quote-unquote advanced societies. Mm -hmm. So that's something to really be careful about um, to avoid that particular bigotry. Oh, yeah. And like people know stuff about the world around. We have this con concept that a lot of people thought that the world was flat. And I'm sure that there were people who thought that the world was flat. But anyone who lived by the coast um, or who knew anything about travel or the ocean knew immediately that that was like conspiracy theories. Right. They could see the horizon. They could see that if you head towards that place, sometimes other lands appear from the water. So you're heading over a curve. I think that's a good example as well of having multiple beliefs. Like, like there will be people who believe weird conspiracy theories, like that the Earth is flat. And then there will be people who observe the world around them and come to sensible, logical conclusions. Uh, so in any culture that you're building, like you have, you can have a variety of thought forms. Um, but I am getting off track because we're talking about technology. <laughs> but I think it's a really good thing to remember um, that regardless of technology level or advancement in knowledge, people are not stupid. Yeah. People often do stupid things and they make stupid choices, um, but they are not typically just straight up stupid. So they're observing the world around them. They're using logic to kind of figure out how things yeah. work. And I think you have to fold that into good world building. So I... I have a real fondness for, like, Renaissance-level technology, just because that's kind of my comfort zone. That's where I have fun. Um, you get some cool fashion opportunities that I am uh, personally kind of partial to. Uh, you have clocks so that you can use um, people talking about hours and minutes. <laughs> uh, those are important metaphors to use. Uh, you have uh, knowledge of astronomy, some knowledge of gravity. You have a bunch of other cool stuff too. So that's my vote, but I'm willing to be flexible if you guys have other things that you prefer. I, I was going to say, but do you wish to be pushed out of your comfort zone on this, Alexander Roland? I could be persuaded. I mean, I could be persuaded out of my comfort zone just because, like, there's a thing that I like doing usually. Like, in my books right now, I am writing in a sort of renaissance-ish level tech just because I like it. And they don't have guns yet. Like, they have printing presses, but no guns <laughs> because I wanted them to. 
but like I said, I'm willing to be flexible on this and, and do something else if you guys are super inspired. So I think it's it's a great thing that we haven't immediately taken a turn toward um, toward medieval um, because we are definitely doing a moment of um, choosing something very particular that fits our interests instead of falling into sword and sorcery kind of fantasy. Um, for me in particular, I really enjoy um, probably just about anything from late Renaissance through um, like late Victorian Edwardian era, kind of that whole era um, of, mm, you do. of sale, the whole era of exploration, widening trade. There's a lot of opportunity with our particular world for that. Yeah. Um, when you get really deep into industrialization and modernization, um, it takes a, a turn with, with the world building that I'm maybe a little bit less fond of, but I'm open to. I'm personally not a huge fan. Well, not so much a huge fan, just like not as much interested in industrialization because I feel like when you start writing about that, I, it for fantasy at least, it tends to be really easy to just like start taking more stuff from the real world like cars or factories or these real world things that we're familiar with rather than exploring new and exciting ways to do things in a situation that has more technological limitations if that makes sense. So my vote is nah on industrialization. But in terms of exploring new worlds and such, what if we push a little more towards a flintlocky age of sail? I could do, we could, yeah, we could split the difference. Yeah, we could, yeah. All right, sure, 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 sure. And that could be fun. You know, we have black powder, which which is guns, but but not like super reliable, fancy guns. Just like as a, as a thing to play with. <laughs> I couldn't remember if your series was was a flintlock fantasy or not or went <laughs> off the top of my head um yeah it, it's based on kind of late 18th century so you have you have black powder you have yeah you have sort of lots. like like french revolution flavored exactly um and you know when you think about um that particular introduction of technology it's not so reliable and so um kind of dominating um that it can take away completely from the magic i mean black powder is it's kind of fun to play with I shouldn't mm -hmm. admit that should I um it sounds like I should be on a watch list or something um but but black powder can be kind yeah. of um, interesting to work with in conjunction I think with magic because it's not a perfectly reliable right. option guns but shitty ones <laughs> I'm good with that no I think that we can play with that and also like the introduction I'm gonna go off on another delicious tangent here but, but like the introduction of a technology like guns makes violence towards other humans more hmm accessible if that makes sense because like you know you know what i'm saying like if you are a person who can afford a sword right then that allows you to you probably also can afford a horse and then you have the laws of chivalry which are telling you here's why you should not be a dick if you are a person who owns a sword <laughs> and a horse here is how you use the traffic laws to not run people over and be a huge asshole to all the people around you. That's what the laws of chivalry are, right? But once you get guns, anyone can just like go around and like murder a guy with zero effort whatsoever. <laughs> and so I think that opens up some interesting kind of opportunities for stuff to happen, 
I don't know. I'm just making shit up here. <laughs> no, I think absolutely. And I think it also changes completely how um, how governments use armies and who you are seeking to put in your armies. And there are different kinds of social stratification that I think happen um, because of a different kind mm-hmm. of um, military officer class versus professional soldiery, which kind of starts to happen um, in a different way when you get into the black powder um, era. So another question that I think we kind of have to dig into a little bit is to what degree is a technology in a fantasy world going to line up with real world technological epochs? Do they line up um, kind of perfectly or are there some elements that are really far ahead and some that are further behind? Can you untangle technology um, enough that you can Mm -hmm. have, say, flintlocks, but we haven't figured out printing presses yet? I think that for me personally, I would err on the side of the technology is interlocked and influences each other. And so I, if I were writing something like this, I would probably just take all of that technology from that time period and just like transfer it over because it is a big old tangled knot and it'd be really tricky and maybe not worth the time to pick out one thread to reweave it in a different way, if that makes sense. Though, I mean, certainly one of the things I did with the Meridane books is I've definitely mm-hmm. cheated a little bit in terms of I have some gear punky leading towards steampunky type technology happening within the world, but still no guns because I just didn't want to deal with guns. But so I have some of that stuff that advances yeah. a little faster than weapons technology. But like clock technology and things like that are a little more advanced but and i think you i think you can play with that a little as long as you're consistent within the culture of the world that you're building um especially if you have magic and magic allows you to have all sorts of other cheats that you necessarily wouldn't have that's another element of this world that we haven't locked down yet is what the magic is like in this world we have a tech level now do we have a magic level now does magic exist (laughs) We're gonna have to do that'll be its whole. We're gonna other... have to do a whole nother oh. episode about magic systems specifically. However, yeah. I th- like add magic and shake. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that we can take a moment to just like briefly answer the question: Is there magic in this world? I think this is a fantasy world, so I vote yes. There is. We can answer what sort of magic at a different time, but I'm comfortable with the yes. Put a pin in it. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Yep. Cool. Let's come back to that later. <laughs> so I, um, I definitely agree that we can fine tune the influences of magic on technology, um, but I agree that it's going to be a lot easier to um, kind of keep our tech somewhat running concurrently mm-hmm. with each other because there are just so many little details that you don't think of at first as um, influencing so much else. For example, you know, you have particular metal alloys that allow you to make um, spiral steel and that then changes the kind of corsets that people can make and then that changes the kind of fashion that people are wearing. So I think that it's, um, you get into kind of a, a tricky area when you start to pull up some things and leave others. And I think that there can be some play and magic can definitely play yes. with that, but it's an, it has um, to be a really obvious choice. One thing I think, if we accept the idea that that the highest level of technology in the world is like an age of sale flintlock level of of technology, 
then how widespread is that? Is a good portion of the world at that same level? Clearly, there's going to be some areas of the world that are that are more primitive technologically, that are that remain hunter-gatherer or such, depending on the region and what sort of resources they have. But how widespread do we want that to be? Do we have most of the world being in that place, and thus that would, if most of the world is in that place, that certainly lowers the amount of one culture or colonial dickheads, unless one culture is our colonial dickheads is a direction we specifically want to go for that specific purpose. I think it's more fun to have everybody has opportunities to use this technology. Like I'm not a huge fan of the one culture is a colonialist colonialist dickhead. I think that that is, I think there are many people writing that and, and (laughs) doing a very, very great job at it. And I think that it, is more fun personally to tell different stories you know like, okay like we know the way which humans can be horrible to each other via colonialist dickheads what are some new fresh ways for humans to be horrible to each other <laughs> this is probably another spot where the, the physical world itself is going to have a big influence right because the world that we are working with is one where everything is very interconnected. It would be really hard to develop something and not have it spread to those other areas with this particular way of, of layout. Um, it's not like um, the you know kind of real world where we had a quote new world that could kind of sit there for a while and not get yeah. discovered. Um, whereas quote unquote discovered, um, our world doesn't really lend itself to that. I would strongly agree. Like all of these places in the world are close enough together that they, or at least not necessarily point A is close to point F, but like point A is close to point B is close to point C. You know, you can chain along from one place to another. Each place is close to a different place. There's nothing completely isolated. So I think that the technology would be fairly widespread, but as uh, Marshall Ryan Reska said, uh, it certainly wouldn't be total saturation, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, that there are plenty of isolated parts of the world. Now, is there a yeah. part of the world that is isolated and more advanced, like an Atlantis or a Wakanda? Mm, what do you guys think? So if we kind of bring it back around to, um, to again, what we already have laid in place, because sometimes you write yourself into a corner. Um, I don't know that there's a place that lends itself really easily to that unless it was like a very deliberate choice. Like if we wanted to, we could say that a particular region um, is using um, either particular um, technological advances, like a really strong navy, or particular magical advances to shield themselves. Um, Otherwise, they're going to get stumbled upon. Also a question of what choices a culture is making, because isolationism versus um, contact is is a cultural choice. So I think that if we did have an Atlantis or a Wakanda, they would have to be making a pretty, in our our map, um, conscious choice to be isolationist at that point. Along those lines, though, looking at the map, since at this point we're, we've not none of us claimed or are talking too much about Section Ten, I, I would like to just say let's let's put a pin in the idea that Section Ten could be something different. Like, not necessarily a more advanced civilization, but that they're just somehow in a different place from the rest of the world. Because they are a little bit isolated, and natural factors could make it that that's just harder to get to because there's more storms or something. Or they might have built up a navy to keep people away, or something like that. 
but I mean, that's not a thing we have to get too deep into, especially since that's not one of our three sections at this time. But the idea that right. that could be something that could be something we play with in a weird way later. I like I, I like that idea. I'm cool with that. So should we go ahead and jump into like creating these uh, these cultures that we talked about? Sure. Mine was section eight last time, I believe. The desert one, right? Yes. All right. Uh, um, who wants to start? Okay, so I, I am going to claim, like, island immunity. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, mostly because just the, the location of it, I feel that depending on where um, the mainland sort of takes its direction, I, I kind of want to be able to react to that in some ways. Um, so I'm going to, if you guys don't mind going first, I'm going to let you guys go first so I can take my cues from that. That's legit. That's legit. I am happy to go first then okay so um it's really boring to just listen to some guy drone on for hours and hours about his fucking fantasy world that he invented even though you dear listeners are listening to us do exactly that um so we have tried to come up with some interesting ways to talk about this that will keep you entertained and amused as we are uh, giving you this information. Uh, and I think we decided on doing kind of a bad cop, good cop thing, right? Correct. So which of you is going to be the bad cop and which of you is going to be the good cop here? Do you have a preference? We should probably take turns being good cop versus bad cop, so... Okay. Okay. Sure, sure, sure. I, for the record, I have thought nothing about this. All I remember from last time is desert culture. They have those gourds in the ground where, which, like, collect water. And I have put zero thought whatsoever into this. So we're going to be doing this on the fly. Hit me. So go ahead and let's launch us into this. Tell us what kind of survival strategies, population, cities, what are you doing? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I like cities, but I don't think that they have very widespread cities because, of course, desert. Um, a city has to have access to water, so they would probably have some small uh, semi-permanent population centers springing up around oases. Um, and... Um, along the coasts. Uh, I think that the biggest cities are going to be definitely on the coasts, which is, I think, typical for many uh, cultures throughout history. Uh, and then you have like a couple, I I'm thinking of like some semi-legendary city, legendary to people outside this culture, but like the, the sh like kind of a golden city of El Dorado type thing that people talk about. Like, oh yes, that's off in the desert, but it's impossible to get there for outsiders and you have to have guides and know the way and so forth. Meanwhile, like all the the people who live there, all the citizens of this nation are like, no, yeah, like this is normal. This is just some like tourist bullshit that we tell people. <laughs> uh, so a few cities, but uh, sort of limited because of the environment, as I said, because um, your population centers can't get too big um, because, again, access to water. I think most of them are going to be nomadic and um, I like goats so they can they can be primarily goat nomads and does that answer your question or am I missing something else? Cool. 
Yes, yes, goats. I, I love it. Perfect. Yes, goats. And they're about goats, and they're about some, like, I'm thinking, like, less than a dozen city-sized population centers. That they goat between. That they goat between, exactly. <laughs> um, and you might, like, during particular seasons of the year when there might be slightly more rainfall, slightly more access to water, you might have uh, the wandering tribes gathering together in one of these places to trade with each other and have festivals and so forth and like engage in human socialization with strangers, uh, which is always a very popular pastime uh, for folks. Um, but in the drier seasons of the year, they're naturally going to spread out a little bit more to take advantage of, of the scarcity of water. So I'm going to ask you about their religion. Do they have one unified religion that binds them all, or do they have each their own individual religion that sort of might create a larger pantheon, if you look at it one way, but each, each tribe or, or subculture within it has their own, has their own thing that's individual yeah. and separate. So, so Marshall Ryan Mareska is definitely the bad cop. Uh, because I will confess right now, religion is a weak point that I have noticed in my own world building in the past. It's something that I have kind of a hard time thinking about because uh, I was raised by atheists. I am like sort of semi-atheistic myself. Sometimes I have angry conversations with the ceiling. Uh, that's about my, 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 I mean, whom amongst us, right? Um, so I have a hard time kind of fitting my brain into the mold of what is it like to be a person who believes in this way. So I think that I am going to have these people be more about ancestor worship. Um, they might, like each sort of family group or, or traveling nomadic tribe uh, might have some ancient matriarch who has sort of almost ascended to the level of a, of a demigod. Um, like this is the, the person who who always looked after everyone and uh, they might be still looking after people after death. So you keep a nice space for her um, when you set up camp uh, and you offer her a little bit of food and a little bit of water to make sure that her, her spirit is staying with you and staying nourished. Um, but I don't think that they have an established religion or like an overarching god god or if they do that is certainly not the person who's taking care of you and that's not the person that you're like interfacing with spiritually okay right? that's a pretty good answer <laughs> no i really like that that was really that, that, thanks that's, that's some good stuff. i just made it up well it definitely makes a lot of sense that like their their religious or cultural touchstone is something that gets carried with them as nomadic people so i like that i like that a lot yeah so oh gosh so another question so i'm wondering we, we said that this is going to be a world that um trade is pretty common mm -hmm. people are engaging with other cultures um what is it that that your culture kind of brings out to the table in terms of um engaging with other cultures Ooh. what did, what do they have that people want or want to to see them for yeah I think that my people, like, because it's a desert, um, there's, like, the environmental factor that is keeping them semi-cut off from the rest of the world. Again, like, they're going to have some interaction on the coasts in their one or two coastal cities. 
um, there's certainly going to be like young goat herds who run off to the city to search for a life of adventure on the high seas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but I think that they might have a slightly lower access to and interest in technology, um, just because like to carry on their way of like they have such a specialized set of knowledge to survive in this very unwelcoming environment right this is the stuff that they have figured out the techniques that they have figured out to allow them to survive in this environment and bringing in technology from outside might seem either unnecessary or excessive or might just not be something that works for them um, based on the situation that they're living in um what do they have to offer they're on the northern coast of a continent, right? I don't have the map in front of me, but I seem to recall that. Yes, they are. So I think one of the primary things that they're going to be doing is transporting goods across the desert from the regions to the south. So it's sort of like a, a Saharan Africa uh, situation where you have the cultures along the Mediterranean Sea and then you have the sub. Uh, sub-Saharan cultures, and then you have the um, trading routes across the Sahara um, that only, like, experienced uh, guides know about. Um, and back in, like, the medieval times, or at least, like, the, the pre-industrial times, um, like, those trade routes were active. Uh, so I think that carrying trades goods from the south to the coast is going to be a big thing for them. I think that um, they're going to deal a lot in goat-related products. Uh, perhaps they have a particularly delicious and sought-after cheese that is uh, fermented in the emptied-out water gourds from the desert. I don't think a lot of mining themselves because there's not going to be a whole lot of like natural resources in the desert. So that's another reason why they're sort of constrained. They don't have a really good foundation for a really thriving and vibrant economy, you know? Does that answer your question? Absolutely, it does. Excellent answers. Anything else right now? How do they feel about modesty? Good question. Um, I think that this is something that again ties into environment. Uh, living in a desert, you probably want to have most of your skin covered to protect you from the sun, to protect you from the wind and the sand. Uh, and so I think that interacting with the environment has led to them being a slightly higher modesty culture, except I don't want to lead it too much into like a direct map on um, a real world culture. Um, so I'm going to say, ooh, I'm going to steal something from my own books and the say best that they to are, steal from. <laughs> the best, best place to steal things from. I'm going to say that they are extremely high modesty for both sexes and that anyone showing skin is scandalous. Uh, so it's not just limited to one gender. Uh, it is universal, like you don't show show skin um, because the desert is terrible to live in. So then, all right. All do right. they have different rules when they're when they're all in the tents or when they're all in the inside? You know, that is a really great question, and I'm actually going to say let's make it seasonally based instead. 
Um, so like during the rainy season, you can drop modesty, right? And you can like go because like um, there's fewer dust storms. Uh, the weather is nicer. You don't have to um, like protect yourself so well. And so the taboo is that like when they are gathered together um, during the, the rainy season of the year, um, in these larger communities, these larger semi-permanent settlements, then it is more acceptable to go around in lower... Mo- it's like the party time, right? Like, it's like going out to the club. <laughs> um, and, like, that's when that's when everyone is meeting people to get married to and um, having inadvisable sexual encounters... Um, so like, that's kind of when it's more acceptable to, to let loose is, uh, during that season of the year. So is monogamous marriage the, the standard of the culture? Why you gotta, why you gotta come for <laughs> me and I'm ask the me bad all these, these hard time. questions? You are the bad cop. I'm gonna say yes. Okay. And I don't have an explanation as to why. And I think that that should be the last question for me. I think it's time for you guys to take a turn. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Marshall Ryan Maraska, tell us a, a short intro about, about your culture. Remind us a little bit about the, the biome and environs besides the giant sloths. Besides the giant sloths, so I'm in section 12, which part of it, the biome is a very sort of fertile Mediterranean region. Lots of crop growing and agriculture and that sort of society and very warm when it needs to be warm, but not too warm. But then there's other parts... There's other parts that are closer to the equator and thus are a bit hotter that are closer to, to desert or at least less less friendly environments to to agriculture. So and this was a little thing I started thinking about of having some crisis hit the entire region that different regions, different cultures within the region reacted to in very different ways. And because I've been watching Handmaid's Tale, the idea of that there was some sort of fertility crisis hitting the region, that some sort of okay. disease made it that it you didn't get pregnant. But then the a biological solution quickly presented itself. Like, oh, you just you take this herb or you eat this root and then everything's fine. Oh, so it's like it's like birth control but opposite. Right. But so Oh, that's fun. Yeah. But so then the idea of two different societies then take these bits of information and react in radically different ways with mm-hmm. that bits of information. So one culture, say the, the more agriculturally fertile culture, is just like, great, this means we only get pregnant when we want to and don't yeah. have to worry about, about unintended pregnancy and thus becomes a far more libertine, open society that doesn't have very much in terms of like modesty rules or marriage rules or anything yeah. like that. The, it's like here's feminism in a sweet little package with a bow on top. Right, Here you go. <laughs> sure. But then the other society reacts in the absolute opposite direction in utterly ritualizing all aspects of sexuality and pregnancy. It's like this is how yeah. we have to do it because you have to take the herb and all that. So when okay. the main thing I was thinking of instead of making it be like Handmaid's Tale where it's, you know, it's basically rape culture, um to make it that for any men wasting their seed outside of the ritual, that's a huge crime. And thus they're a very strictly modest culture and live with strict gender divides within the city other than 
when the ritual happens and things like mm. that. That was the mm. that was a, an idea that that struck me. That is fascinating. So you have taken sort of an opposite approach to what I did and actually put some effort into it. <laughs> just that was something that just started started buzzing in my head and then no, that's wouldn't cool. let go for a while. So I'm like, okay, how can how can I that's use cool, that? That's cool. That's cool. So what? Let's talk a little bit then. Like it Wait, seems who's like you got cop, that who's down bad cop? <laughs> Well, I was okay. a good cop last time. So okay, yeah, yeah. I'm bad cop. Yes, yes, you are a bad cop. Okay, so Go so bad cop question here. Go for it. So if um, if we consider a map um, and we need to think about elevations and and other kind of bordering geographic stuff, um, what is it that keeps those two cultures distinct from each other and separate? Um, what is it that keeps them from bleeding together and um, them them just kind of mushing their cultures and being so distinct with one another? We have different versions of the map for one thing. So there is a map, there is a map that has elevation on it, of and then the bio. Come on, Rowena. Come on. Of course, he gave us a map with elevations. <laughs> the, on I, but I can Please. understand if that's not specifically. If you're looking specifically at the biome map, um, there, no, but that you know, I I can I can explain the the regions in. In section 12, um, like A, C, and E are relatively low lands that are on, you know, that's on the the coast of that little inland sea. It's not, it's more of a Mediterranean sea type of sea. And then G and F are more highlands. There's a lot more. So F is definitely a low, low level mountain and harder to, to get across. There's, there is definitely some some physical features that can keep these two cultures separate. Okay, so another question to help me understand how this is working. How long ago did this um, biological disaster happen? I think the thing that happened, it needs to be long enough ago that it's no longer living memory. Maybe not a thousand years, but maybe like two, three hundred years. So all Mm. the all the ritual and sociological effects of it have stayed filtered down through just the, the sense of like, this is what we do, but not necessarily the whys of, and this is why we need to keep doing it, but we keep doing it because we do. Nobody specifically remembers the great fertility crisis when there was no babies. They just know this is, this is how we do it. So I have a question. Yes. You said that it was related to a disease, right? Okay, yeah. Well, I, uh, that was a theory of what it could be. But Okay, okay. So, like, if someone visits this area... Okay, actually, first of all, back up. So every this has been going on for, for two or three hundred years. So, like, the people who are born now are still living in, in this fertility crisis, yes? That Or have they, like, recovered? I think it's recovered only in the sense that they know they now have the solution with the the root or the herb or whatever it is. Okay, but if they didn't have that like they would still just not be having babies, right? right? That's correct. Okay, cool. So it's like a genetic thing. Yes. Like this thing happened. Maybe it's related to the magic in that area for some that's a good way to like hand wave it right. is magic. <laughs> Uh, I'm the good cop. I'm helping you. <laughs> and I appreciate your help, Alex. <laughs> a wizard did it. Um, so we got that. So now we know also that like people who come to this area to visit are not going to go home and be sterile. Right. Yes? Yes. All right. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Um, let's. It's, so it does sound like you have lots and lots of that settled out. Um, I want to ask like one or two questions about like some other aspects sure, of this culture. Sure, sure. So how about 
how are they interacting with the technology of the world? Like, not what are they offering to the world, but what is the world offering to them that they're benefiting from? Well, let's see. I think definitely they... Certainly the, the more libertine people are very sort of outward, exploring, friendly, hey, you've got some cool stuff, we've got cool stuff, let's mm-hmm. let's have cool stuff together kind of culture. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how trade develops. And that's how trade develops. <laughs> so I think surely on the level of there's all sorts of cool herbs and cloths and all this stuff elsewhere in the world and I think on that level they are very big like celebrators of like you're doing a cool thing. We would we okay. would like to buy it rather than we will punch you in the face and take it. So they're like the extroverts of they're the world. They're the extroverts of the world, definitely. Right. So I think they would also be the type to like go and go to different parts of the world and be like, Hey, we have a big party back in our city. <laughs> you and all your friends should come and then like have everyone from all parts of the world in their city. So their cities, I think, have over time become very cosmopolitan because they're the types to be like, hey, come visit us because we think you're cool and we want to know more about you. (laughs) Come start the United Nations. Come start the United Nations in in our house. (laughs) (laughs) Cool, cool, cool. Uh, Rowena, do you have any any further questions we're getting towards the hour so i want to keep us moving forward no i think that that is fine okay to you i guess so to me all right so i think i was just the good cop so i have to be the bad cop this time (laughs) yeah that's the rule yes so tell us a little bit about your archipelago all right so taking a look at it um it is situated so that it is close to the equator and in our biomes that we have given it it is um lots of like broadleaf forest, rainforest, and um, kind of rich vegetative areas. Um, I would also imagine Mm -hmm. that you have pretty consistent temperatures there. You would also have, I would imagine, like seabird migrations. Maybe seabirds are um, like breeding there. You would have a lot of fish um, kind of moving past. So it's a really rich um, area in terms of resources to survive on, so much so that I imagine that the people there um, have figured out that they can grow and make money off of luxury goods in addition to be able to just survive on this land, right? So they have um, some some pretty um, developed, um, almost like plantation kind of culture where they're growing, um, maybe like rubber or, um, special dyes or spices like cinnamon, um, -hmm. so that they can develop an export kind of culture on that. Okay. And I also think that they, um, because of their island situation, they have a really good Navy, good boats. Yeah. So I have a fun question. Are they more likely to fight in themselves or are they more likely to clash with Marshall's extroverts? <laughs> fight, fight, fight. <laughs> Sorry, no, go ahead. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think 
think that Marshall's extroverts would be their customers. That's true. Like they want to sell shit to Marshall's extroverts and they probably do. And Marshall's extroverts probably have um, been a great market for them over the years. I think between themselves, they jostle and they kind of fight for superiority, like whose island is kind of (laughs) on top right now. Um, But overall, I think they have to be aware of being able to band together um, and kind of combine their, Mm. their individual navies in defense against larger nations that might have the capability of poaching them if they were not united. So I think any like inter-island fighting is um, mostly um, kept pretty low-key, and they can drop yeah, it. so it's more like slap fights. Slap fights, exactly. Okay. So what sort of governance do they have in all these smaller municipalities within that? Are they democratic or are they nobility? What do they do? So I'm imagining that um, this is a culture in which like money talks. So it's whoever is kind of on top in terms of having um, the finances in place is also in charge um, of governance. So it's sort of an oligarchy. It's not an inherited nobility. Um, but it's also not an elected democracy. So you have a definite haves and have-nots, and the haves um, are people who have really made it big with trade. So like your your cinnamon um, oligarch is is the um, kind of ruler of your little principality. So are they, it's a series of fairly smallish islands, right? So is it one family per island? For the most part, on the smaller islands, I think you probably have one um, kind yeah. of wealthy um, family or group per island. Um, the larger ones might be split, so you have a few larger um, groups. And I think that there definitely are cities, especially on those larger islands, kind of orchestrating trade. And I think just to keep it from being straight up like patriarchal money talks um, kind of culture, I think that they are matrilineal, mm-hmm. not necessarily matriarchal, but matrilineal in that inheritance is going through the mother's line, not the father's line, which with okay. nations that um, that the land is very important and is a major means of production that could get interesting. Yeah, and that's how you would do inheritance of property and so forth. Okay. So my next question is, if you have a sort of oligarchy of money situation, do they have some form of stock market or, or measuring of who's on top financially or something like that or ways that they can essentially do battle purely financially oh that's fun i think so i think that you would almost have to right because you are basing this economy mostly on export which means that the money is not going to be coming back Mm -hmm. in right away so yes i think that you have a futures market yes yes (laughs) yes bitch yes (laughs) i wrote a whole novel about this (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, you know I'm weak for a futures market, babe. Um, that's very cool. I like these people. I like how they're all like super different from each other too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Do we have any more questions about Rowena's or, or Rowena? Are there any other? Am I the bad cop or the good cop? I can't remember. You're the bad, I'm the bad cop. I'm the bad cop. Okay, I'm gonna let's end with a real bad cop question. Rowena, tell us something cool about them. <laughs> well, that's not bad cop at all. That's awesome. I well, love that it's question. putting you on the spot, and it's making you like think <laughs> it's, of it's it. It's bad, right? and it's open ended, and you <laughs> this don't. This is true. <laughs> yeah, this is true. Okay, so um, looking, thinking about them, um, I'm thinking about they're very spread out. You could have a lot of diversity between these islands, but I am imagining that 
the kind of consistent cultural piece between all of them is music, that they are really into music um, and that that is how they are able to share a cultural um, subset kind of between those islands because music travels easily. So all those major cities um, have an Mm. opera house um, and there are traveling um, operas that kind of move from um, island to island and it's a huge part of their culture um, and their history that they have okay. a lot of um, a lot of music they they print a lot of music share a lot of music they developed like polyphony and all of that like before everyone else did because music is just their bag and if you want to fit in on a Friday night like you go to the opera that's what you do with these people this is rad as fuck um, I love it let's take a vote on who won I vote Rowena <laughs> I, I, I will accept that vote there's no winners we all won come we on all Alex won. That's true. <laughs> they're, they're, we all won we all won listening to this episode of world building for masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life i hope you had as much fun listening to this episode as we did making it i am really so impressed with my co-hosts cool cultures and i am really looking forward to exploring them some more on the high seas our next episode goes up on august 21st now that we're starting to get bogged down with all these Uh, chewy details. We're going to be taking a step back to talk about how we can actually organize this stuff. And to that end, we are bringing in an expert, Jen Lyons, author of Ruin of Kings. Jen Lyons is a good friend of mine, and she's getting kind of famous on the internets for the descriptions of her private wiki that uh, she keeps to organize her own work. Uh, So we look forward to picking her brain about that. We really hope that you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a moment to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review somewhere. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. Here's your cool fact of the day. We haven't actually established what my desert culture uses for their transportation when they are traveling, but in the real world, travelers across the Sahara would use camels. Camels have been known to survive for six or seven months without actually drinking. That's wild.